There's something incredible about that thought of, you know, the shepherds coming before this manger of this little baby. And this little baby being God, humbling himself, born in a tiny little town in the middle of nowhere. You know, not, not coming in light and glory on the top of a mountain or in a palace or with riches, but coming in humility. And uh, yeah, it's just that reflection that God is so different than the kings of this world. Yeah. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that we get this privilege of worshiping you. I thank you, God, that you are worthy of our worship. We adore you. We love you. I pray tonight that as we look in your word, that we will be able to, in a new way, see you clearly. And as we see you, God, that you would change. Grace in your name. Amen. Now, for a little context, because we've been gone for a number of months and a number of you have joined the congregation since then, so I don't uh, know you super well, but um, a year and a half ago, I was diagnosed with emergency leukemia, and I was immediately hospitalized, and uh, my life hung in the balance for a couple of weeks as uh, I urgently received medical care. And... And so when we went back to Canada now and we saw our, our family, my parents, my wife's parents, brothers, sisters that we hadn't seen since, since that uh, near-death experience, you know, it was, it's frankly very overwhelming for lots of people that we saw. You know, we would see people and uh, they would often start crying like in front of us, even in like the grocery store, which is slightly strange. But it's because for them, they've just seen on the internet that someone they know, whether, again, that's my brother, someone that's very close to me, or just a friend or someone from church, they've known, they've been aware that, you know, I've had this medical emergency on the other side of the earth, and, and it's prompted them to pray. It's prompted them to pray for, for my health, for my family. And so when I came back now and, and started speaking with people, people would, a lot of people would say to me something like, Mike, how did you do it? How did you do it? And, and what they kind of mean by that question is, is, Mike, how did you keep faith? How did you trust in God in the midst of death? So they knew from the other side of the world, they knew it was very serious and life and death, but they weren't here. They weren't part of sort of you guys who, who really walked the road with us. And as people would ask me this question, like, how did you do it? I, I, honestly, I, it kind of, at first, it struck me, I was like a bit dumbfounded. I, I didn't know how to answer the question. And I think part of the reason I didn't know how to answer the question is, to be very honest, I, I didn't feel, and I still don't feel like I did anything special or unique or that I did anything, so I can't really answer the question. I think all you could maybe say is that I, I clung or I grasped or I, I, I tried to hold on to God. But it was God who carried me through as the saints, as the church, prayed for me as I lay in that hospital bed. 
So how could I possibly take credit if it's God who carried me through? So when someone asks me, how did I do it? Well, I didn't really do anything. It's, it's God who carried me through. And so it's actually, it's a, it's a difficult question for me to, to answer in that sense. Now, previous to being in hospital, I had spent time looking at the life of Christ. And in the life of Christ, I could see that earthly suffering, earthly struggle was normal. And I could also see in the life of Christ that submitting yourself unto God in the face of death was normal. As Christ was wrestling with seeing the cross before him, knowing that it was to be the end of his earthly life, he wrestled with the Father, but he submitted it to God. So in the face of death, he gave that thing over. He gave over authority over his own life to God. And that gave me a lot of peace, to be very honest, because I wasn't experiencing something that Jesus himself hadn't walked through. He walked through earthly suffering. He walked through having to submit his life, even when it was near the end, when he could see the end in sight, to submit his life to God. And so it gave me a huge amount of peace in that place. Now, today is, as we know, the first Sunday of the new year. And all over the world, people like to set New Year's resolutions. And there's nothing wrong with setting New Year's resolutions. Um, and probably some of you in this room have set New Year's resolutions. I hope you accomplish them. But it did make me think a little bit, what would be God's New Year's resolution? You know, what, what is God's goal for you in 2024? And to be honest, it's actually a pretty easy question to answer. You see, God's goal for you in 2024 is that you would grow into maturity in Christ. It's not hard for me to answer that question. God wants everyone to come to salvation to get to know Jesus, but he doesn't want anyone to stay there. That's the starting spot. As you come to Christ, his call on your life is that you would grow into maturity in Christ. And maturity in Christ from a biblical perspective is, is simply defined that you would reflect Christ, that you would be like Christ. So in the way you think, in the way you talk, in the way you handle finances, in the way you deal with relationships, in the way you talk to your neighbor, in everything you do, that you would do it in the same manner as Jesus. That is maturity in Christ. That is what it means to be mature in Christ. Now this is much like, much like there was nothing I did in the hospital, but it was God who carried me through. You can't through hard work do those things in your life. It is only God by his spirit working in you that you can see those things popping out. That you can see such change, such transformation that when, when people look at you, they think, Ben, you are a different person than I knew three years ago. Like, completely. But what you can do, if you set your heart to saying, God, if your goal for me is that I would 
mature in Christ this year, that I would become more like your son Jesus this year, if that's your goal for my life, what you can do is posture your heart for God to move, for God to work. Posture your mind for God to move, for God to work. You know, even in the parable of the, the soil, it's in Matthew 13, Jesus is, he says there's a farmer, he plants seed. And the farmer representing God and the, the seed representing the gospel, the good news. And it goes out. It goes out to the people. And it says there's four kinds of soil. I'm not going to go into that passage right now. But the point is that you cannot change yourself. But you can prepare yourself. You can choose to be the kind of soil that when you receive the message of the kingdom, when you receive the good news... The message grows. It becomes a plant that bears 30, 60, 100 times as much fruit as that which was planted. And so what you can do is to prepare your heart for God to do something in you this year. For God to grow you, to mature you. And one of the ways to prepare the ground of your heart to let God move in your heart is to be intentional about looking to Him. Be intentional about setting your eyes upon him. To be intentional about beholding him. And that's the, the title for my message tonight. My, the title for my message is, What we behold, we become. What we behold, we become. The thing that you behold, the thing that you look deeply at, that you contemplate, that you gaze upon, that you concentrate on, the, the, where you set the eyes of your mind and the eyes of your heart, you will become like that thing. What you behold, you will become. Now there's many things that we can behold in life, that we can set the eyes of our heart, set the eyes of our mind to. You know, I know someone who, who beholds Rubik's Cubes. And someone else, Mario Kart. And someone else, motorcycles. And a fourth. Oh, we won't touch that one. <laughs> just kidding, just kidding. I say this in jest, but, but it's also serious. There's, there's a warning there for us. Are, you, are we daily laying, because I'm not talking about... I am, actually, sorry, I am talking about random people, not my family. <laughs> Are we daily laying those things before the Lord? We're putting them first in our hearts and our minds. Are we striving to excel at Nintendo? Or are we striving to excel in our faith? To become like Christ, to behold and to become like Him. And I'll give you a simple test if you want to know what, what am I beholding in my life? Okay? Now, this is going to get a little sci fi, but just stick with me. If, starting tonight, aliens were to come to Earth, is the sci fi part, and they were to send a little invisible drone that would sit three meters above your head. Okay? okay? And for the next seven days, that little drone is going to follow you around everywhere you go. And after seven days, that little drone is going to go back to Alien Master Headquarters and report on 
humanity, and in particular on your life. Report on what, what did this person value? What, what were they seeking? What was on their heart? What was on their mind? What was their life all about? What would they find if a little drone followed you around for seven days and watched you 24-7? At the end of those seven days, that little drone went and reported back. They would say, you know, Samuel, every day what I saw in that guy's life was... What? Would, would that little drone go back and say, that's a person who beheld some guy named Jesus. I don't understand. He never seemed to actually meet him in person, but he just never seemed to stop talking about this person named Jesus. Or would he go back and say, it's actually, the guy just seems to care about motorcycles. He washes his motorcycle, he rides his motorcycle, he spends money on his motorcycle. If someone were to watch your life for seven days from three meters above your head, what would they say your life is all about? Would they see in your time, in your thoughts? Would they see in how you engage with other people, in your relationships, with your resources? Would they see that there is something that you are devoted to that's, for them, hard to understand, but there's this person named Jesus that you are devoted to? Whatever you behold, you will become. That's part of why I asked him if we could sing this last song. Well, come all ye faithful. Because that little verse in there that says, Come and behold him, born the king of angels. Oh, come let us adore him. It's an invitation. It's an invitation to come and behold him. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says this. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. I'd love to dive a little deeper into this verse tonight. So in this verse, the guy who's writing it, his name is Paul, and he's writing this as part of a letter to the church in Corinth to the Corinthian people. And he's writing to them and he's talking about this veil. He's saying, we with unveiled faces. Now if you open your Bible to that chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, you'll see earlier in the chapter, he actually kind of gives two analogies that he's talking about with the veil. So he's saying, with an unveiled face. What does he mean? Well, he's meaning two things that he mentions earlier in the chapter. First, he mentions that what the veil represents is, back in the Old Testament, the greatest prophet of the Old Testament, his name was Moses. And Moses would go to this tabernacle, this special tent before the temple was built. And in the tabernacle, he would go and he would literally sit face to face and have conversation with God. The, the Spirit of God, which was represented by a fire, would come down onto the tent where Moses would be inside as he would meet with God. And then as he would leave that place, the Bible says that as he would leave that place, his face would literally, physically glow, would shine, as if the radiance of God kind of transferred to him physically as he spent time in God's presence. It's an incredible picture. I mean, can you imagine just sitting down 
for lunch with God like that. And then as he would do that, over time, after being in the, the tabernacle, the glow on his face would begin to fade. And Moses wouldn't want the people of Israel to see that the, the glow that God had put onto his face was fading. And so he would put a veil, he would put a cover over his face so that the people of Israel could not see the glory of God fading physically away from his face. And so what Paul is saying here, part of what he means by an unveiled face is he is saying that now with an unveiled face, you get to behold, you get to look at you get to gaze deeply upon the glory of God. You get to sit with God. You see, God is no longer available only to us when we go to the temple or the tabernacle. Rather, in Christ, through the gift of the Holy Spirit, He comes to dwell in us. He comes to dwell in us. So there's no longer only the priests or only Moses who gets to go do the whole sit with God thing. In Christ, every one of us becomes a priest of the Most High God. Every one of us in Christ gets to sit with God. And we ought to, in the same way that Moses had this glow, this shine on his face, we ought to also have a similar glow, a shine on our, on our hearts and on our minds that when we talk with people, our family, when we talk with our neighbors, our colleagues, when people see us, they ought to see the shine of the glory of God in our lives. Because we're not responding the way we would in the flesh. We're responding because we've beheld God. We've seen God and that's changing our words, our thoughts, our actions. And so I want to ask you, do people around you see the glory of God on your face when you walk around? Paul's also telling the Corinthians earlier in this chapter, so that's the one picture of what he means by an unveiled face. The second part to that is he says, now the whole Jewish nation has become veiled to the truth of the gospel. You see, when Jesus came, he was a Jew, he was a Jewish man. But the Jewish people rejected him at that time. They could not see that he was God's son that was prophesied about in the Old Testament. And that prevented them from entering into God's new covenant, God's new agreement that he had with humanity. They remained stuck in the old, in the law, in the way of Moses. And likewise, I believe that all around us, people have a veil that is covering their face that prevents them from understanding the gospel. Now, it could be the same veil that Paul's describing here, the veil of the law, this veil of legalism, this veil of religious thinking. If I just follow a perfect religious tradition, that's how I will get to God. It could be that same veil. But it could also be a veil, a blindness to understanding the gospel because our mind has... <laughs> thinks just like a, 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 a postmodern Western humanist. You know, there's three different veils right there. 
You know, in Canada, we see a lot of people who are blinded by the veil of democracy. They can't understand authority in the church because democracy is so deep in the culture. It's a veil. It prevents the people from seeing God's way. There's many, many veils that are in our world that prevent us from understanding the gospel. It's just ways of thinking that stop us from understanding God's way. And so Paul is telling the church, he's saying with an unveiled face, because you have become born again, because you have come into God's household, you can and that veil has been removed, you can behold the glory of God. And so there's an invitation there to each one of you. Come and behold him, born the king of angels. Oh, come, let us adore Come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. You know, are we able to stop? Are we able to stop what we're doing and take time to behold Christ? To take time to really look to him and see him in his glory and allow him to transform us. You see, that's the next part of the verse. As we all with unveiled faces behold the glory of God, we will be changed. We will be transformed into the same image, that image being Christ, from one degree of glory to another. Now that word behold there, literally it means to behold is in a mirror, to see is in a mirror. And the, the, the implication is that when you look in a mirror, what do we naturally see? What do we see in the flesh when we look in a mirror? We see ourselves. We see a reflection of ourselves. But what God is saying in this verse is that if you behold him, then when you look in a mirror, you will be changed. That you will no longer see yourself, but there will be a reflection coming back that's going to look a whole lot like Christ. A whole lot like Jesus. It's a little bit like if you've set your course and you're traveling west. And now you adjust that course and now you're going southwest. And now you adjust the course again and now you're going south southwest. You know, when you look in a mirror as, as you are responding to God and he is working in your life. You look in a mirror in the flesh and you see yourself. But then as you behold him and are transformed, you look and again you see, you see Samuel and Jesus. And then two weeks later, I'm picking you, you can sit in the front, you know? You know, two weeks later, you look in the mirror again and now you see Samuel and Jesus, Jesus. And three weeks later, you look and now it's not, you hardly see Samuel anymore. You just see Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. That's what Paul means when he is saying going from one degree of glory to another. That every time you look in that mirror, as Christ has changed you, you are entering another degree of glory because the reflection is no longer a reflection of you, but it's a reflection of Christ through you. So first it's you being changed into the image of Christ, but then now that transformation is being reflected back to the world out there as well. 
So when people look to you, they no longer just see you, but they see Jesus in you. Whatever you behold, you will become. In uh, Josh Chen 412 in Wellington, we have a, a Bible school over there called TMT, Timothy Ministry Training. And, uh, or it's a discipleship school, would be more accurate. So last year I was there, and I was visiting with one of the like house dads or dorm dads. These are guys who just stay with the students, who are mostly young guys and ladies, but he's in the guys section, um, who stay with them and, and help them really with their day-to-day -day challenges that they face as they wrestle with life and ministry and the word and truth and what God's doing in them, all these things. And so anyways, as I'm, as I'm talking with this guy, he says to me, he's very, very tired because the previous night, he was again up till two in the morning with one of the students. And he then says to me, God's really been challenging him. As he is walking with these students, it's a bit of a slower approach. But instead of giving the students the answer to whatever challenge they're facing, to instead help that student to behold Christ for themselves, to help that student to ask the Lord and wait for the student to hear from God what is the answer, what is the way forward for them to behold Christ and then to let Christ change them. I thought that is just such a beautiful thing. You see, it might seem like beholding Christ sounds like a very churchy kind of thing to do. Not very practical. You know, I went to church and the pastor talked about this thing that sounds very spiritual, but I don't get it. But actually, I believe just like these students, if each one of us, if we learn to behold Christ, if we learn to look to him, to look to his life, to look to his teaching, we will both find Christ in whatever circumstances come our way, but we will also reflect Christ in those same circumstances. So we will find God's path in that circumstance, but we will also reflect that truth, that hope, back to those around us in that circumstance. Yeah, you know, as I was in, as I was in hospital, I feel like that's very much what happened to me. I didn't, I didn't plan or prepare, but as I was there, God worked in such a way to reflect back to Him and to reflect, to reflect Him, sorry, to the world around us. And I want to say the more we grow into building a healthy habit of beholding Christ, the more practically we'll see ourselves changing, not because someone told us to, but we'll see ourselves changing from the inside out. Because we ourselves have seen the goodness of God, and it's changed us, and so then it comes out of us. Not out of force, not out of coercion, but because of the, the joy of the Lord has changed our mind and our hearts. 
So I don't know, you know, 2024 is just starting. You know, if someone had told me at the beginning of 2022 that the day is going to come this year where the doctor is going to tell you you've got seven days to live, I don't think I would have believed the guy. And so as we gather, you know, there's whatever, 35 of us here tonight. We don't know what this year has. For some of us, this year could have incredible highs of new opportunities, new relationships, new jobs. For some of us, it could be an incredibly difficult year. We don't know that as we stand here today. For most of us, it's probably going to be a mix of both. There's going to be some very good things, but some challenges along the way as well. And my heart is to say that if we behold Christ and we look to him and we allow him to change us from the inside out, that is the absolute best way to prepare for whatever this year has. You know, if I look at Paul's life, he found himself in incredibly straining, difficult circumstances. And yet in those circumstances, he consistently reflected Christ. And so even just a, a couple chapters after this verse, in chapter 6, verse 4, Paul writes these things. And I want you to see how the glory of God shone through Paul's very difficult circumstances. He says, But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, by great endurance, in affliction, hardship, calamities, beatings, imprisonment, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech, and the power of God, and with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as imposters and yet are true, as unknown and yet we are known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, and yet possessing everything. You know, I don't know what challenges 2024 is going to have for you. I don't know what the highs of the year are going to be. I don't know what the lows of the year are going to be. But I do know that like Paul, if you will behold Christ, and as you behold him, give him permission, give him authority to transform you, to change you, you will not only overcome whatever that obstacle is, but you will reflect Christ as you walk through that obstacle. People will look to you as you go through whatever this year has, and they will see Christ in that place as you walk through it. And so I want to ask you, as, as a way to both challenge and encourage you, is, is Jesus enough for you for whatever circumstances you will face this coming year? Be they good, be they bad. Is Jesus enough for you to face those circumstances? Is Jesus enough for you if this coming year you find yourself in a situation where you have no friends or you have no best friend? Is Jesus enough? Will you behold Christ and trust him to change and transform you from that space of feeling lonely?
Is Jesus enough for you if this coming year other Christians gossip or slander about you? Or a pastor or an elder fails you? If that happens, if an elder in this church hurts you, is Jesus enough? I'm not saying that that's a good thing or that that ought to happen, but every one of us struggles and falls into sin at points and makes mistakes. If that happens, will you behold Christ? Will you look to him and will you let him change you, not the other person, change you, that you can reflect Christ in that situation? Is Jesus enough if this coming year you don't have a job and finances are tight? Will you behold Christ? Let him change you so you can reflect him in that circumstance. I mean, look, look at the... We are sorrowful yet always rejoicing as poor and yet making others rich. It doesn't even make sense. If you're poor, how can you be making others rich? But in his poverty, as he saw the Lord and allowed the Lord to change him, he was able to make others rich. Is Jesus enough for you if this coming year someone in your family dies? Is Jesus enough? Will you behold Christ and allow him to change you from that incredibly broken, difficult, hurting place? We don't know what 2024 has. In a similar way, is Jesus enough for you? If this year goes really super smooth and you get a new job and finances are pouring in and you get in a new relationship, is Jesus enough? Will you behold him and let him change you so that you know that even though I'm walking in earthly blessings, those things are temporary. They're meaningless. They're worthless. I will look to him. I will not forget my God even if I am blessed with earthly resources. I know these things are difficult. It is very human to struggle with trusting Jesus with our own personal problems. You know, it's always easier to see that someone else needs to trust Jesus with their personal problems. But can we say, God, help me to trust you with my struggle, with the thing that is hard for me, with the pain, with the hurt, with the challenge, the circumstance that is hard for me? It's a huge step in our faith when we get to that place that Jesus is truly enough. I can behold him and he changes me and there is contentment full stop. I don't need Jesus plus friends. I don't need Jesus plus finances. I don't need Jesus plus good relationships. There's no plus. Jesus came at Christmas time as a little baby, born in a manger, reflecting the absolute glory and love of God. He came to teach us about the Father's love and then to demonstrate the Father's love on the cross. Think of Paul in that last part. 
as having nothing and yet possessing everything. When we have Christ, we have everything. Even if to those around us it looks like you have nothing. You know, as I was preparing this message, I, at this point, I did feel a little bit like, Mike, it is pretty heavy for the beginning of the year. A little rough for January 7th. But I think part of the reason that I carried on was two things. First, having just come back from Canada, both in Canada and here, we regularly see people who... They knew the Lord. You know, I was talking with Marco today. They knew the Lord. We went to Bible school together. We went to community groups together. We went to church together. We worshiped together. And somewhere along the lines, Jesus was no longer enough. They needed something else. And so they left the faith. I think in Canada in particular, it often comes from a place of complacency, from that place of... Um, walking in, in relative blessing and not feeling the need for God. And so you forget. But it can also come from heartache and from a time of struggle. And then the second reason why I stuck with still preaching this was I want us to see in Paul's words there that he's not, he's not in a place of despair. You might look at him and say, hey, this guy's poor, this guy's having nothing, this guy's sorrowful. You pick the first part of sort of each line, there's a certain lens. But if you pick the second part on the line, you can see, look, yet always rejoicing, yet making many rich, yet possessing everything. You know, when we behold Christ and let him transform us, there actually becomes a joy in every circumstance. You know, Keith is going in hospital. Yeah, it's not easy being in hospital. But there is a joy that came to him as the Lord filled his heart and his mind with songs of worship and praise to God. There's a joy in that place. And so actually, I think the message is a whole lot lighter than it maybe sounds. Because if we learn to do this, there will actually be a joy in hardship, a joy in sorrow, a joy in loss. Because I have Jesus, and he is enough. So today I want to encourage you, fix your eyes on Jesus. Hebrews 12.2, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Fix your eyes on him. Lock them on him. Behold him. He is the perfect example of faith. For the joy of being with his father, he endured the cross. Likewise, if we behold him, we will be, find the joy of the Lord and we will scorn despair. We will find the joy of the Lord in whatever circumstance we are in. And we will receive the same reward that he received, which was to be with the Father, to be with God, to sit like Moses face to face with God.
Landing my last, uh, my last scripture is really just talking about how practical, okay? So if, if you leave from here saying, I want to behold God, how do I actually do that? What does that actually look like? I want to read the first couple of verses of Psalm 63, and I think the answer is a whole lot simpler than, than we think. Psalm 63, verse 1 and 2. David writes and he says, You, God, are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you. In a dry and parched land where there is no water, I've seen you in the sanctuary and beheld, take note of that, and beheld your power and your glory. So practically, how do we behold him? I think there's two very important pieces from these verses. There is a posturing of your heart. There is a, a seeking, a longing, a earnestly desiring. If you are going to behold Christ, it's not just going to happen. You're going to have to posture your heart and you're going to have to go for him. You're going to have to run for him with all of your heart. You're going to have to be willing to get rid of everything so that you can have the treasure of, of the, that's in the field. There is a, a, an opportunity to run after God with everything that we have. So it will require a posturing of your heart, a seeking, a longing for. And in this, the second verse, I have seen you in your sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. You see every one of these pieces taking time to seek him, to long for him, to be found in his sanctuary, that place of worship, whether that's a quiet place in your house, whether that's going for walks in nature to worship the Lord, whether that's spending time in the saints like this, in this sanctuary, worshiping him, all of those things. To seek the Lord, there is, I believe, a specific sacrifice that is required on our part to bring. And that is the sacrifice of time. If you are going to behold Christ in 2024, you will have to give him time. You have to give him your time. Give him authority over your time. Give him space in your time to spend with him. And that's really the, the challenge and the invitation that I want to close upon. Is will you give your time to God to behold him this coming year? We give our time to so many different things. And yet those things do not help us to get to know our maker. They do not prepare us for the challenges or the blessings of tomorrow that are yet to come. But if we give our time to God, if we make a practice of beholding and looking to Him, then it really doesn't matter what tomorrow holds. Because the one who holds the future, you will be walking in His joy, in His image.